All right, welcome back to the show. So I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Enterprise Device and Firmware Security Specialists at Eclipsium. Eclipsium ships an enterprise device platform that provides visibility and mitigation for malicious activity all the way down to the firmware and hardware level. Think of it as one platform to discover, inventory, assess risk, patch, and detect compromises and supply chain breaches across your entire fleet of devices. Check them out and request a demo at eclipsium.com. E-C-L-Y-P-S-I-U-M dot com. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Josh Schwartz, Senior Director of Proactive Engineering at Verizon Media, part of the Paranoids team. What does that title mean? What do you do there? Can you set the stage of what the Paranoids team is? Yeah, well, thanks for asking and thanks for having me here. The, the Paranoids, we are the information security team at Verizon Media, soon to be at Yahoo again. Right. Uh, the Paranoids, it's a security brand. It's about 20, 21, 22 years old. Um, originally founded it at Yahoo for what they call the security team. It's something I'm very proud of that we have this brand that's lived for a long time like that. I oversee a number of functions. One of those is offensive engineering, what we normally call uh, the red team, as well as all of the things that you typically expect in the security engagement space. So training, education, outreach, culture building, but we we call it behavioral engineering because we take a behavioral sciences-based approach to it, and that sits very tightly with the red team. And then we also have an engineering team that builds sort of large-scale solutions based on these things, the findings that we have. And this is all focused on protecting Verizon's Verizon media assets, or are you also providing that kind of services for third-party customers? Right. It's completely internal. So no third-party customers, very much focused on the information security space within the company. You're head of red teaming there. How do you define red teaming in, in the context of what you do? Because there's a, there's various definitions of red teaming, whether where it meets purple. And I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between red teams and blue teams. I had Tim Malcolm Vetter on this podcast when he was head of red teaming at Walmart, and he talked about a really strong adversarial relationship, which surprised me. So I want to get into it with that. And that's why I wanted you to set the stage of how do you define red teaming for the purposes of what you do there? Yeah, you know, and, and this is a, it's a widely debated kind of space. Like what is red teaming? It's the big question always. And I guess as a person in this space, I get to have an opinion too. So my, my sort of stance is that we often think of it as a technical art, as a, t- a purely technical thing, deeply technical exploitation, finding vulnerabilities, things like that. But I think it's, I think it's much more and more so it's a it's a psychological practice one of which where we we show up repeatedly to challenge assumptions and to try and look towards alternate realities trying to explore alternate realities what if we assume something completely different than to what everyone else is typically assuming about the nature of our business the nature of our technology and so it's not purely an exercise of finding bugs and vulnerabilities but rather looking at the intersection between technology human behavior, business process, changing landscape, and, and sort of the limits of our own you know, minds and the blind spots that we sometimes have when we start to do things repeatedly in an environment. But you sound like you're describing the entire security program. You're saying that the discipline of red teaming fit in between there needs to be take on this holistic view as well. And not as narrowly targeted around, okay, we're focused on, we have a trophy to break into the CEO's email and we're just focused on that. You're saying there's a bigger, larger fit within a bigger security program. Yeah, I guess I'm speaking to the why and not just the what. The what, yeah, you set an objective, maybe it's the CEO's email, 
Maybe it's you know, taking over an ad platform. Maybe it's taking over various assets. Maybe it's moving money. It can be any number of things. But that's sometimes what you do. But why do you do it? The why is very much to, to kind of shift people out of existing thought patterns. So it's like if you ever, you ever conduct a red team operation and you're doing something that sort of everybody knows will work or it's expected, you're not adding very much value. I think I always look for that moment where people go, oh, wow. I never thought about it like that, right? That's like successful end of a red team operation. Which is different from, oh, wow, we got popped. Because if we're following established kind of norms and understanding is if there's an advanced adversary that who is resourceful enough, you will get popped. There's a, there's just at some stage, do you, believe, first of all, do you ascribe to that? And are, as you think about red teaming within Verizon Media, are you for coming from like an assumed breach mentality you're already assuming? Well, I believe... I believe that limiting yourself to that mentality or not that mentality is, well, in fact, limiting. And it's better to, like a red team needs to be what the company needs in the moment. And it should be something that adapts. So if you subscribe to one ideology, assume breach or something else, you're going to miss something else because everything in, everything in our industry is a, it's a trade-off, right? And so assume breach takes some trade-offs. You lose testing certain aspects of a kill chain, certain scenarios, if you only operate like that. So I think being adaptable is important. Larger though, the sort of like how the space of security, there's something I fundamentally believe. It's almost the lens that I see it all through is that security, it's the industry we're in, sure. We use it as a word to describe almost every activity that we perform within the industry we're in. But it, we really shouldn't forget what the root of the word means, right? Security, it's a, it's a feeling. It's a feeling of safety that you can have. Like, what does it mean to feel secure, to be secure as a person? It means you are you feel safe inside yourself, right? And that is what this is based around. And I think we forget that we actually have a lot of power. If, if it's a feeling, right, we, we, we need to measure it though, right? What you're suggesting there of, of something that's very difficult to measure. And how are you, and you know, the job of the security program or the security team is to communicate exposure to risk to the business, to the board? Is, do you view it that way or do you view it as just pre pre preventing I think it's this? a function of what they do. Okay. It's not necessarily the purpose. Like the purpose of the security team isn't purely to communicate risk. It's one of the things that we do. But why, why does a company hire a security team? It's not to hear about the risks. It's to feel safe, to feel secure. They want, people want an assurance. Because in, in some ways, but that doesn't like exist, this. though, right? I mean, in reality, Wanda doesn't exist. And you, how do you measure a feeling? You don't, right? That The thinking that we can come and measure a feeling is not, that's not going to get us very far. Okay, so oh. explain how you fit this into right. your measurement components. So, so this isn't, for us, the feeling of security is not a metric. It's a lens we can view our activities through. It's mm. sort of like a like a guiding light in some ways. And when I say it's a feeling, it's really a balance between two things. The perception of the danger is on one side of that scale. And on the other side of that scale is the perception of the things we've done to protect ourselves. And if it's enough, right? The perception of the effort. If these things are out of balance and the danger is higher than what we think we've done to protect ourselves, we call that insecure, right? We communicate risk to the board. They go, oh gosh, we're not secure anymore because you told me about something dangerous. But it's important to remember, we communicate both of these. We say what's dangerous and we also say what to do to be safe. 
And both of those things are constantly moving and changing. And it's our job to interpret those for people to help keep their scale in balance, right? It's not to make them feel safe always. It's not to make them feel scared always, but rather to like be the shepherds of that balance because if it gets too far out of whack, people shut down. If it gets too far the other way, they don't listen to you. They don't take security seriously as an industry. And so we really have to think about the actions that we take and how it influences this model, this balance. And red team is one of the things that can move it more efficiently than anything else. The only thing more efficient is a real breach. Don't you run the risk there when you're, when you're attempting to describe it this way of being distracted by a lot of noise, being distracted by headlines, being distracted by CNN.gov, executive order type activity, when you're dealing with a board that needs to, like you say, feel secure. When there's that level of noise and distraction happening up there, is there a risk that that approach distracts you? I don't know if it distracts us, right? Let me switch. Let let me ask the question another way. Are you getting a lot of top-down communication today that's different because of solar winds and whatever the latest? Oh, for sure, right? That's those are the items on one side of the scale because because it's not done in a vacuum. It's not like the security team is the only people who get to say something about it. News headlines, the public, everyone gets a voice, right? And that stuff adds up to the danger. And a lot of times it's because, you know, the board is asking, well, what are we doing to be safe? Because they have all these other inputs in other places. But that's not always true. Sometimes you have a leadership team and they feel, no, we're good, right? They're not reading those headlines or they don't think those headlines apply to them. They would say, we are good. In that type of case, your security team needs to be the ones talking about the danger, right? To bring that scale back into balance. And that's, you know, so that's why I say like the red team has to be adaptable to what is needed in the context. Can red teaming be done internally only, or should you also have third-party eyeballs and external kind of assistance to what you're doing? Is there any value in adding that kind of? I've tried both models. It's hard to get an outsider to run a red teaming program kind of start to finish because there's a lot of like relationship building that's necessary because if you really are not just a technical bug finder, but an agent of influence within the organization, having a representative within the organization is important. That said, it makes a lot of sense to rotate through or to bring in external skill sets based on the operation at hand and not just to augment augment what you're already doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I want to talk a little bit about the security tax as well, because there's the haves and the have-nots. Like Verizon Media, you have resources to have a blue team, a red team, a security program, user education, all these communication things you just talked about. The average organization is just struggling to figure out how do I get email security in place? How do I figure out how do I block phishing? The concept of red teaming just feels like, oh, We're not there yet. What is the threshold in your mind for when a company should actually invest in specific red red teaming component within a security program? Is it the size of the business? Is it mandated by compliance requirements? What is the... Yeah. I mean, I think it's something, well, obviously not before you have basic security staff, right? If you're like security What does basic security staff mean? Well, you you need to cover the like the fundamentals, right? Do you have a vol management program? Do you have a defensive team that has some log sources where they'd have some ability to detect stuff, right? Because red teams can generate signal, but if you've got one person on your team and you're about and and their defense and you're about to add the second, maybe the red team, it's not quite time yet for that. There is an exception to that, perhaps. 
sometimes what you need to get more resources is a red team, right? So, sometimes, because it's a fallacy to think that the security team is the only customer of the red team. It's not just red versus blue, right? It's red versus whoever needs to be on the other side of that. And so perhaps it's the executive leadership who don't see security as a place worth investing. In cases like that, red team a bit early on, or even just like, Having your just for internal messaging staff. about in, just for internal messaging, the the creation of a red team can help with right. that. Because a red team can do something that almost no other security team can do. They can take theoretical security concepts for people and turn it into a real story that happened, that can then be used. And that narrative, I mean, we think as humans, we think in stories. And so being able to come up with a story and not just like, oh, that's a bad configuration. That's a good one. It's a lot. It's very powerful for getting investment. I'm glad you brought up the, the notion of who the customer is for the red team. Who is your customer? My Who customer? do you view as your primary customer in your role there? Because I, and, and this will segue into this adversarial relationship between red and blue. Uh, because I was surprised to hear that actually existed, that these guys in organization is really, really is adversarial. That was surprising yeah. to me. I would expect that in modern organizations with advanced modern security programs, you would have had guardrails and processes in place that these guys are talking to each other. They're feeding things across the cubicle. Does that not happen? In some cases, it doesn't, it doesn't happen, right? Because at, at the heart of it, you know, we are, we are individual humans coming together for some collective good for the pursuit of business. And all of this stuff and these processes and, and things that you would expect, they're all based on human relationships. And if the humans in those roles don't have a good relationship, well, then red and blue have an adversarial one, right? And the functions and processes reflect those relationships. So my, my primary customer, I really like the Patrick Lencioni kind of model, like who's your, what team are you on? Who are you serving? And for most leaders and organizations, I think the typical answer is like, it's my team, it's my people directly. But I think the, the his answer is that it's your immediate team, right? Your peers, and, and you're sort of a representative for the people who are in your charge, but they aren't the primary customer. It's your peers across the aisle, right? Because if you can't work together, they can't work effectively with other people in the organization. And Why so, is there this adversarial relationship, though? Is it because of what causes the what causes yeah. the conflict between red and blue? Is it just the everyday operational things of you just getting in the way at all? So, in my current role, we do not have an adversarial relationship. It's why. It's very how, how have you gotten around that? Help help your peers understand how you can avoid it. So, in my previous role, very adversarial, very advers. The reason it was adversarial is because one of the common things that kind of new red teams do is they go, we did a thing. And the other team is like, oh no, like what would you do? And we, they go, figure it out. Ah, that sort of response. Like there's a little bit of an asshole component. There. It's your job to figure it out. Like you're supposed to be doing this. Like we're the bad guys. You're supposed to catch us. And when you start there, it's sort of like cheeky and playful at first, but you have to think that every time you do that, you're potentially taking their time away from something else that they view as their job. And at the end of the day, red team, it's simulation, right? It's not the real incident. So if you take people's time, their most valuable resource, and you do it in a selfish way like that, it's going to be adversarial. And that doesn't, that's not limited to red and blue teams. That's limited to any 
interaction you have. And that's commonplace among the culture of red teams, right? Is this notion of we're better than you. Yeah, yeah. I think red teams especially, but kind of everybody in our security industry could could benefit from higher levels of empathy. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. No, I, I completely agree. And I think a lot of it is what drives this adversarial relationship. But there's this notion of if you're doing red team in a vacuum without some sort of purple or not in tandem with blue, you're wasting a lot of resources, which I think is what you touched on. How can, what does a good relationship look like among these folks? Yeah. So I don't know if this advice works for people who are already in a bad one, but maybe it's a, a step to get out of it. Obviously you have to listen, right? You have to go listen to what the blue team's complaints are about how things are working. When I, first started this role, I went and did that. I listened. They said, red team doesn't share enough with us. I said, we will solve for that. We will set up a sharing thing. We will make sure we read out stuff. We'll build a platform, a tool that we've open sourced now already that actually helps in the facilitation of sharing where we document everything we're doing, uploading screenshots, terminal logs and stuff. And if we wanted to have someone from the blue team, like either be able to look at it at the end, they could, or even to ride along and see what's happening in real time and sort of do threat hunting. I was going to ask about that ride along model. Is that normal? I think it's I think it's really expensive to to do, honestly, because okay. it's it's really tough for people not to jump into their sort of like standard mode of reacting. So when when defenders see something like compromised, asking them to not try and solve it or fix it in that moment, it's really tough, right? And so a lot of times ride along doesn't work well because of that. And you're constantly balancing between the trade-off of trying to get the test to reflect reality versus trying to fix the issues as you find them. And those two things typically compete with each other. But I imagine there's a threshold where blue has to come along almost immediately where there's certain discoveries that are so high risk or so much exposure that blue has to, there's a certain yeah. threshold where you, you have to bring blue in earlier before you can get to the end and finish a report, right? Yeah. Yeah. So part of what, part of what we've done that's been fairly effective is having a situation where we'll kind of go from an assumed breach mentality, we'll kind of use internal assets and things, and we'll, we'll go along noisily until we get caught. And then when we get caught, there's sort of a, we keep each other updated. And they're like, okay, we're following you, we're detecting, but we're not responding. And separating the ideas of detection and response into two separate activities, and you can say, please respond or please don't respond, but do detect, is I think it works well because it allows the red team to continue the operation the full way through. And it allows the blue team to exercise some muscles and, and it, I mean, it seems to work. When, when you get a target in front of you as a red team or, or you're sitting there and contemplating a, a, a campaign or a project, do you automatically know, do you or your team automatically know how you're going to get in? Are there like this common errors that are constantly being made? Is there like an, a common entry pad that you are always running into? Not necessarily there at Verizon, but across the board. As a red team, as you, as you wrap your head around this simulated attack, do you already know where you're starting? Is it, help me understand the, 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 the psychology of it. Yeah. You know, it gets a lot easier to write the scope document if you have some idea. But there's, like everything, again, it's a trade-off. If you get too much of an idea, you don't leave room for what you're really trying to do, which is kind of discover something that no one knows yet, including yourself. And so... Scopes tend to be pretty open-ended, but you have an idea about what might work and how you're going to approach it and the kind of list of things that you're going to try. There are certain scenarios 
that's sort of our instant game over 100% of the time though. And so if you have this situation in your environment, you got to fix that before, like you either have to purposely not use it as a red team after you've done it once or twice, or you have to fix it. And so that situation is essentially unfettered lateral movement to endpoints. If you can come up with a way where you can move to anybody's system at will, you can bypass all other subsequent security controls. And it just becomes a detection game at that point. So for instance, if I want to get into the main production database, I just figure out who has access to it, move to their system when they access it, follow it. It's really, really, really hard to stop this attack when you can't control movement to the endpoints. If you've got that solved, then it becomes the SSO portal is typically the main target. And so if those two things are locked down, you're starting to get limited to sort of novel exploitation or opportunistic exploitation against the very specific target that you have. So it has to be in a situation like that where you can start kind of thinking outside the box and doing all this other crazy stuff. If you can't lock down those basics, every red team operation will take that path because it is the one of least resistance. What, what is a common thing that gets you caught? Is there a piece of technology that you're always running into as a red team? Or what? Let me flip the question the other way. Is there a bit of defensive security technology, just technology, that you hate as a red team or you're always running into it, they're always catching you? Not necessarily a company, but a, but a yeah. concept. It's interesting that you limited it to technology because my answer was going to be it's users. Processing people right? and users, right? It's, yeah. it's a culture where people you know, notice things and say something, which limits your options for social engineering and various... But, like, the, but a lot of that is driven by technology as well. Giving people the technology and the tools to report things. It's just, you know what I mean? Like like, yes. like automating a lot of that. Yes, yes, totally. There, there is definitely tech... Without technology support, just yelling at everyone, report stuff to security doesn't, doesn't work well, right? You have to give them a means to report things in the place they are with as few steps as possible. Um, Honestly, well, I asked the question yeah. that way because you talked about lateral movement and game over uh, with lateral movement. If you're able to compromise one machine and then yeah. get to the CEO's machine from there, right? I imagine roadblocks in between there becomes crucial pieces of technology pieces, code pieces. Are there things, are there types of innovation happening that you that that appears impressive? Yeah, I mean, okay. So there's there's kind of two answers to this question. There's the if the architecture of how things are set up is sound, right? Goes it goes back to your earlier point about yeah, the fun, if it's not possible to like place. SSH to your laptop, right? And you know, like systems are segmented and different zones and environment is segmented, right? If that's true, then you've basically added a lot more time to how long it's going to take us as the adversary to move through the environment to find the right person. And you're increasing the amount of trial and error necessary, which enhances the detection window. And that's where you get caught. And the, the, I think the greatest technology that we face against detection window is not purely technology, um, but sort of like CrowdStrike is a good example. They've got a service. It's technology on the machine, but it's powered by like a lot of human analysis that feeds back into it. And that does add a time limit to how long you can stay on a system and do a bunch of shady stuff before that actually catches up to you. And so it becomes about over like, you have to slow us down enough so that your detection window can catch up when all those things are in place. But but tools like CrowdStrike, sort of endpoint detection monitoring. They still work. I mean, AV has taken a beating and anti-malware products as a whole. It's, yeah. There's a big discussion about whether it introduces more attack surface than it helps with defense. 
But for the most part, a lot of these technologies still work and can be tripping points for attackers, right? Yeah. And it's not, honestly, I very rarely see like anti-malware stuff, right? Like the sort of signature-based malware detection, I think that's dead. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, there's no product that only does that today anyway. Right. Um, the, the other aspect of it, so you mentioned the sort of what to do for the the people who have very little resources, right? CrowdStrike and Splunk and all these things, they're expensive. Very expensive. Security as a whole is a very, very expensive thing. And that's why we have a ransomware epidemic because you, in the average organization simply can't afford good security or reliable or practical security. I don't know what good security means, but. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the, one of the things I thought that was really clever that uh, had gotten us caught at one point is the team knew they were defending, like the product team knew they were defending something critical in the environment. And they had set up a script basically to get an email whenever someone attempts to SSH into the system that isn't like one of them already. And, and I think that sort of premise of like when something happens, sort of have a feedback loop, right? To a user. And of course you get used to that loop and you start to ignore it. But what happens when you're not logging in and your account suddenly, you get an email at your account or a Slack message or a ping that it's being used somewhere. And so, so that's like a very low cost type of thing to implement that then gives your humans- High impact, right? Very, like real yeah, high impact. very good signal to report things. When, what is the toughest thing to fill a security program with? Is it finding the right set of people at, various levels, or is it figuring out all the snake oil tools and all these cybersecurity, cloud, machine learning, artificial intelligence things that solve all problems? Because it comes back, people always say, security leaders tell me, you know what, Ryan, my problem is people. My problem is always just people. And I, when I go on my networks, I see tons and tons of people looking for jobs and can't find jobs. And over here, I hear security programs saying we have a skill shortage and we don't have enough cybersecurity people. Help me understand what is really going on from the standpoint of like staffing a, a modern security yeah. program. So, you know, this, this brings up a couple of things for me. The first thing I immediately think of is the people issue. We, we have a tendency, we kind of shot ourselves in the foot because we created our own special snowflake industry. And it's very exclusive. It's very pretentious and elitist and it's security. And there's security people and not security people. It's not that there aren't good people who could really make an impact in this space. It's that we exclude them with this way of thinking so much. So a, a large portion of my team is built on from people who do not have a background, a traditional security background. They do not have a computer science degree. They didn't study security. They don't have any security certifications coming in the door. Um, you know, we hired journalists and designers and psychologists and people who have this sort of broad sense of the problem space. You need, we need more diversity and security. And I don't mean, I don't just mean in the color of our skin or our gender identification. I mean, in the backgrounds we have and the thought we have about things because we have trapped ourselves into such a limited way of thinking because security is just this one thing. And it's, it's really not, it's an aspect of all things. And we need that representation of all things. Cause there's a lot to learn from outside industries. There's a lot to learn in marketing. There's a do lot you do to anything special people. to attract them. Do you do anything special to find them? Like what is, what are some 
unique approaches you have to figuring out what type of journalist would fit or which kind of librarian would fit in my security analytics group or whatever? Yeah, I mean, the first step is being open to the idea, but then you need the HR system to support it. Right. The biggest barrier is that the security engineer title, it's reserved for people who can pass a like developer interview. And that instantly excludes all these people. And so what ends up happening is these folks who are very valuable to your program, the the sort of like pay structure for them and the way you can like the job you can set up and the opportunities you can set up, it just it doesn't match what you need from them. And that's how you get these these folks in these like, especially like the security engagement type of roles and the security culture roles. You want this person to do all this stuff and to understand security, but you're not willing to pay them as a security engineer. And so that's why we've come, that's why we lead now with this idea that. There is a function called behavioral engineering. This function focuses on people, culture, applied behavioral psychology to get outcomes for security. And it requires a very broad set of skills. But this is a security engineer. And it's something that can be focused internally on the employees or on your customer base. Right? How do we engineer solutions for the customers so that they have an experience that results in them being more protected? I've heard this answer all the time. Is this conversation becoming easier with your HR department and your chief people officers? Because I hear CISOs and folks like you tell me all the time, we need to open our minds to getting security people from different places. But when I go to your own company's job descriptions, they're requiring CISSP, CEH, all the acronyms. They're requiring university degrees. They're looking for 10 years of experience in red teaming. And like, it's like you're saying one thing, uh, but as an industry as a whole, we're making these requirements so strong that people aren't even applying. Uh, and we're not even getting yeah. into like the gender issue and some of the, you know, people who are on the representative issue. Does HR get it? That's the question. No, no HR exactly. doesn't get it, right? It's, this is, this is such a, we're, it's a nuance. Security is a nuance and this is a nuance within a nuance, right? And so does HR get it? No. Can you win this argument if you have the right support from your CISO from your CTO, from your CIO, yes, right. But it requires someone to go make the arc. Like you have to, you have to approach it, and you have to really. It requires some investment. It's one that's worked where we're where, where I'm at currently, and we're able to kind of you know we have representation on the hiring committees. We have representation with HR. We've got the job titles updated. That's a lot of work in itself. It's work that's worth it. I think the company will be able to continue to perpetuate that long into the future and. I think if we yeah, all did that, we could we could make the change happen. It's kind of that foundation, part of putting the foundational things in place. Where do you stand on certifications? I know you mentioned, you, 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 you know, uh, at Yahoo, you, you came there to a place where it wasn't important. Do you recommend kids go get the certifications today? Kids coming out of college? Is it because, again, your job descriptions are, are requiring them? Yeah. So I, you know, I believe in playing the game, right? Talk and to me about that. What is the game? The game is... Your career, your life, right? Each and, each and all of our lives and our career, it's, you know, I view mine like a game. And you get to decide what the win condition is for whatever game you're playing on any particular day. If the win condition for you is you want a certain job and you can see that that job requires a certification, like why, why let some philosophical standpoint or something I say here sway you one way or the other? That's clearly the step to win that condition. I think the only thing to be careful of is don't see it as the only step, the only way. Because if you only think that's the only way to advance yourself, then that's limiting. 
Right, but it's also tricky in cybersecurity, especially with so many certifications and so many uh, specializations and sub niches that you can get into a rabbit hole of trying to get all your certifications. And before you know it, you have so many initials and acronyms behind your name that it's all useless, right? I mean, how, how should, again, it comes back to your individual game, right? Like what is your game and how do you want to focus? Do you want to get into cloud? Do you want to get into web app, AppSec, bug bounty? It's a different thing, right? The games differ. Yeah. And it's different from company to company, from coast to coast, different places. I mean, so there's not one answer to it. I, I think certifications serve a practical, a practical purpose for you to say, the knowledge within this certification is something I have seen. And I, at one point, knew enough of it to pass this test. And that's a, that's a strong statement, one that can't be, like, if you can, you can just say that, but not everyone's going to buy that. And so they serve a valuable purpose in that regard. Uh, when I hear Verizon and Yahoo, I can't avoid the thought that you guys, well, not, not you personally, but the company has been involved in some significant breaches and major incidents over the years. Can you talk a little bit about like what taking an L in an organization means and how that can help drive? Is there any specific change that that can help drive? I, it comes back to, you know, you yeah. need to feel pain before you change. Certainly. Well, I wasn't around for the, the breach, so I can... I, I kind of get a pass on that one, luckily. I don't have to lie to you or anything here. But I think in a more general sense, like and I said this earlier, right? Like what, what can influence anything more than a red team? It's a breach, right? And that it, it, creates a, it creates a shift. It creates a very real reason for investment. It, it becomes part of the narrative for a company and it becomes a lens that you view everything through afterwards. And it's a lot easier for the business leaders to understand and I think one of the one of the benefits of having gone through that is that you don't get this that'll never happen to us kind of dismissal of things, right? You get people who are willing to engage, you get people to understand that. And I, I think it has a long-term benefit. And the reality is most companies have been have been breached. It's just some you hear about, some you don't. And if you this you is see correct. Scenes, I mean, if you if you just look at the ransomware epidemic we're facing today, and the fact that almost everyone is compromised from pizza to beer to I mean, it's every everything is compromised. Do you do you feel like and we'll end here because we're up against the half hour mark? Do you feel like we're at that inflection point now, where the ransomware and all the noise that I talked about earlier, supply chain noise, ransomware noise, a lot of dot gov activity on this today, nation state activity, a lot of more intense focus on it. Do you feel like as an industry, we're taking this big giant L that's going to force significant change, or are we just going to start throwing more money and more snake oil at the problem and not really address these foundational fundamental things at the bottom? How well, optimistic are you? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not optimistic that people will stop capitalizing on fear as a way to market and sell products and make money. It's one of the foundational things you can use to sell something. So I don't think that's going to stop, but I do. What I do see happening over time is that this like cybersecurity becomes more and more part of the normal discourse, the normal discussion, and where we are perhaps going as an industry, and where the public understanding like it's obviously lagging behind. Um, but I I don't feel like the stuff that's happening lately in the news. There's like recency bias a little bit. Those things are big, but it seems like it's always happening. Yeah. And I think it's part of a perpetual cycle as we try and figure out how to feel safe. And I think some folks will make progress and some folks will capitalize on the fear. And, you know, but, but I, I, I'm optimistic it's, that it will get better over time. 
It does feel like the only folks who will make progress are the folks with the haves, though. The security tax is so intense on the average small to medium. It's like even for hospitals, for instance. You know, I just saw Wall Street Journal carry out. Gavin Paulson wrote a great piece in the journal today about this Ryuk gang and just no empathy or mercy whatsoever for victims among hospitals. And the fact that, you know, these are just computer systems that have life and death attached to it, but there's just no security team in place. There's no patching. These things are all running XP and so on. It just feels like there is no, there, there is no security for the rest of us. There's, there's good half decent feeling of security for you know, richer organizations. And for the rest of us, it'll be this constant, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things, it's kind of like, do you tie your sort of personal wealth to your time, right? And the security team is kind of that model. It's like, you can only be secure when there's a bunch of people working on security. But there's there's other ways that I think these things will get better that isn't just about staffing, right? If you think about, how we design products over time, over a long enough period of time, like the the good new designs that are coming out, the things that Apple and Windows operating systems are becoming, they, they're designed with this in mind. I think over time, that type of change is what's going to help these places where it gets it gets harder at a holistic level, but it's gonna it's a really long tail on on the time that it takes like hospital devices to get refreshed and stuff like that. So. I think it's going to be really slow, but I do see it moving in a direction where these things will get harder. All right. I leave it there with a sense of optimism. I'm a pessimist. So, and, I, and I'm not only am I a pessimist, I'm like just dejected because it just feels like we're on a hamster wheel uh, to nowhere. Um, so it's always, it's always fun and refreshing to get someone in the trenches giving you a more optimistic view of things. So I'll leave it there. Josh, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Come back at any time when you feel like you have something to say. Thanks.